0: Welcome to the Life Giver Marriage Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your military or first responder marriage. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm honored to share this journey
1: with you. Close your eyes for a minute you want to the Hi, this is Lindsay, the creator of UpliftingAnchor.com,
0: and I'm giving a shout out to the Life Giver Podcast. I've been listening to it for months now and I heard hope for the first time. Um, I heard ways to start being proactive and I heard of someone like me, a fellow spouse who had walked in similar shoes and that I could relate to. I hooked my earbuds up to listen to each podcast, started showing up in my marriage again and I sought help from counseling. My energy and faith on our path forward together was renewed. Finding Giver was like finding the heartbeat back into our marriage together. With us today is Dr. Michael Seitzma. Just as a reminder, this particular interview is for mature audiences only. If you have little ones in the room, this may be a really good time for you to get them situated somewhere else because this particular interview is for adult ears only. Dr. Mike Seitzma has been working with couples in a variety of capacities since 1987. He is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia, a certified sex therapist, and a certified sexual addiction specialist. He has a PhD from the University of Georgia in child and family development and marriage and family therapy, where he specialized in marital sexual therapy. His dissertation was on sexual desire discrepancy in married couples. Michael has recently joined with three Christian sex therapists in founding Sexual Wholeness Incorporated. Dr. Mike is passionate about marriage and helping couples grow in their marriage. This passion is clearly evident as he engages a room full of couples in looking at their marriage with the hope and increased confidence they need. His giftedness in teaching helps couples learn important truths about marriage in a fun and interesting way. The majority of Dr. Mike's clients are couples rebuilding emotional and physical intimacy after an affair or sexual addiction. He also works with couples with other sexual issues, couples falling out of love, and also couples struggling to communicate. He and his wife, Karen, have been married since 1985 and have two sons. Again, just a reminder that this interview is for mature audiences only. It is such an honor to have you, Dr. Seitzma, join us and join us for the summit today speaking to military families.
1: Thank you very much, Corey. I've, it's really an honor to be here and to speak this group of wives for you.
0: Would you mind telling some of our listeners a little bit about what you do in your practice and some of the issues that you most often see with the clients that come in?
1: Yeah. My initial training was as an addictions counsel working with substance abuse way back in the early 80s, then trained as a pastor, then um, started in private practice, kind of a general practice, and just really fell in love with working with marriages. I think nothing, nothing gives us the opportunity to truly face ourselves, to face what is not always healthy in us. Um, Our spouse holds up a mirror and says, you know, do you see this in you? It's not very healthy and gives us the chance to either try to break the mirror and uh, attack our spouse or to truly turn towards ourselves, take some ownership of what's not healthy in us and and grow. And I love those moments where I'm helping people to kind of face themselves and, and decide to grow up. So we started building intimate marriages in 1998 to really work with marriages. And I see about 25 couples a week, about 70% of those are post-affair couples, uh, couples that have really experienced some of the trauma of infidelity and helping them to grow and to heal from that and and become truly great, strong marriages. About 20% are kind of the classic sex issues. I did my dissertation in sexual desire discrepancy, so a lot of couples arguing over how frequently they have sex, a lot of pain in sex, um, a lot of, A number of inconsistent marriages, it's actually quite frequent um, difficulty with orgasm or arousal. And then about um, 8% just high conflict marriages. Um, No adultery, no affairs, no real sexual issues, just really high conflict. And then about 2% are going to be singles, sometimes they're post-divorce or they're pre-marriage that are coming in to talk to a marriage expert about how do we do relationship different, how do I set myself up to be healthy in the next one or or in my marriage. Um, then the rest of the time is spent doing workshops, seminars, and consulting with other therapists, with other community leaders. So uh, it really is focused on relationship and intimacy and growing up as people.
0: So you said 70% of your client base is those who are post-affair couples. What led you to becoming passionate about serving that particular population?
1: You know, that wasn't a population that I targeted. Um, it's just what walks through the door. And I think or part of what's happened is over the years, uh, those couples truly do get well. Um, they walk in so wounded, so broken and without any hope. And very quickly, uh, it just begins to turn around. And I'm not sure why the numbers are quite that high. You know, it's not like Jim and Bob are sitting across the lunch table and Jim says, yeah, I'm having an affair. And Bob says, hey, go see Dr. Mike. He helped us. Uh, It's just what walks in the door. And it's really cool to watch the dramatic transformation that happens in these couples. Um, So I'm really not sure other than I love doing it now.
0: As a as a professional counselor myself, specifically most of the time working with military families, I've seen a number of my own clients coming in who have struggled with um, an affair in the relationship or um, even the temptation towards having an affair. And it makes me think sometimes that because our military lifestyle, not to say that the military community struggles with it any more or less than the civilian community, but just from our own experience of being in the military and having so many separations that our couples go through because of training or deployments, it can be a huge temptation for a lot of our couples to accidentally fall into an emotional affair or find themselves attracted to someone when their spouse is gone. So would you mind giving us, based off of some of the experience that you've had for a really long time working with a lot of couples, how do most affairs start? Or is there a way that most affairs, does it go along a, a similar track each time?
1: You know, I think there's going to be a lot of different ones, but two broad categories would be occasionally, somebody just seeks one out. Um, they want to have an affair. They're lonely uh, or they're angry at their spouse, and so they truly seek out an affair. But most of them happen when people just kind of get lax. They get loose with the boundaries that need to be set. Um, they keep thinking, I can manage this relationship, it's, it's not going to get dangerous. And they start playing with fire and they wind up getting burned.
0: You mentioned boundaries, and there's a lot of military families that put very strict boundaries up to protect their marriage, especially when we're spending time apart from our spouse. Based off of your experience, what are some things that our military families can do to be more protective and set healthy boundaries? What are healthy boundaries for protecting a marriage from an affair?
1: I think we have to be very careful anytime we're with somebody who is a potential partner. So, if we're with somebody of the opposite sex, those can be good friendships and good relationships, but we have to be aware that there's another layer of uh, sexuality that is going on in it. And so, boundaries of we don't have sexual conversations, uh, we don't talk about frustrations with our spouse, for example. Uh, The women in my life just think I am married to the most amazing woman, because she is. Uh, But they're not going to hear the frustrations. Uh, The guys that I, I meet with may hear some of the frustrations, but just setting a boundary of the women around me don't hear that. So there's never any question of would they treat me differently. And I'm not asking that question, would they treat me better than my wife would, as we're talking about it. We don't talk about sexual desires or sexual preferences with with potential partners, with people of the opposite sex, um, that certain conversations just have to be kind of off limits. If it starts to shift to that, um, we shut it down very graciously, but I'm not going to have those conversations. I think we also have to really be careful of touch. If we're in... Uh, settings where we're close and we're developing friendships uh, we might give a hug we might have some level of touch that is friendship oriented we have to really monitor those uh, being aware that we're not looking forward to that touch from this particular individual Um, if I am seeking out a hug from them I need to be aware of it and that brings in I think the most important part which is having a group of people around that help kinda hold me accountable So we find a group of, like, for example, a a male, we will find a group of guys, maybe four or five guys that say, you know, I will help you in supporting the boundary of sexual integrity. I will help you in being faithful to your wife. And so those guys regularly ask the question, is there anybody dangerous? We keep those guys close enough that they can spot if there's another woman in my life that may be stepping in, and they'll step in and, and bring about... Um, help to reinforce the boundaries so to give an example one of my buddies and I are often teach together and in a break in our teaching I may look and say hey second row from the back fifth from the right and he says got it and he says front row third from the left and I go got it and what we're just identifying is a couple of women that may potentially be dangerous they've caught our attention and if one of them wants to talk to me, he'll step in the line and, and kind of distract her away. Can I help you? Or the one that I think is potentially dangerous for him that he's identified, I may help to distract. And we just keep an eye on each other so that we, we keep those relationships safe as we're protecting each other for our marriage. And I think that kind of accountability not only is just really valuable, I think sometimes it's critical for us to, to maintain the goal that we're after.
0: I wonder if there's times that people don't ask for accountability because to point out that they might feel attraction towards someone else or someone else might catch their eye may say something negative about them or or how much they love their spouse. So um, what would you say to that, to those people that might say, oh, I can't tell a friend that I'm attracted to somebody else?
1: I think that's denying our humanity. Um, it doesn't matter how much we love our spouse and how much we're committed to them. There are going to be people that capture attention, whether they remind us of somebody from our past, whether they hold some symbolic significance to us, and to say that that's not going to happen, I, I think is kind of unrealistic, especially in many of the couples that we're working with, where there may be extended times where we're not having the touch, we're not having the connection, where we may feel a little bit lonely and we're experiencing a, um, some real thirst and the intimacy part of our life, and somebody steps in, that's just going to happen. That's part of the humanity. That's part of how we're wired. So to deny that, I think, really makes us unsafe, to say that I wouldn't have that.
0: I do have a question about um, what you just said with spending the time apart, but I wanted to go back and and ask you, you use the word potential partners when you're talking about someone of the opposite gender. Explain why you're using that terminology, potential partner.
1: Just because not all of the people that I work with in my office are always choosing an opposite sex partner, even if they're, um, even if they're clearly um, heterosexual in their marriage in their relationship and in their orientation, sometimes they're attracted to somebody of the same sex and will have an affair with the same sex partner. Um, I actually work an awful lot with that in my office. So sometimes it's, it's important to challenge the clients that I'm working with. It may not always be an opposite gender individual that your brain targets as a, as a potential partner. Sometimes it happens as the relationship develops. So it begins with, I just enjoy being around this this woman. Um, I like how I feel when I'm around her. We're just good friends. And I'm supportive of her marriage and she's supportive of my marriage. Um, But as time goes on and we spend more and more time together, I begin to seek out her company just because I enjoy it. And it doesn't seem like a threat. But when my mind starts to shift to thinking of her as, I enjoy spending that time together, I'm thinking more about her. She's popping up more in my mind. She kind of crosses the boundary in my thinking of becoming a potential partner, not even if it's becoming a potential life partner, she's becoming a potential um, affair partner, she's becoming a potential intimacy partner for me, um, whether that be sexual or emotional. If I'm starting to spend more time with her, sharing more with her than I do with my spouse, more intimate details, that's really moving her into a partner level that's potentially unsafe.
0: So I want to go into more about sexuality and intimacy, um, but before I do that, you mentioned that when we're spending significant time apart with our spouse, that if we haven't had that touch, that physical touch, um, that that can, that can be a real temptation for us. You know, I can tell you that after six months of my husband being gone, I physically felt like my body was just twitching without Uh that physical touch. And I know part of this has to do with the chemical known as oxytocin, which is released in our brain and in our system during sex that connects us to our spouse. I've also heard that oxytocin is released during breastfeeding between a mother and child that also bonds a mother to a child. Known as the connection hormone, this plays a strong part in our connecting with our spouse. And so I imagine that during these times of separation, the body must be going through withdrawal from that connection. And I was wondering, based off of what you know about sexuality and intimacy and how our bodies work. What is going on in someone's body physically if they're not having that physical touch that they're used to?
1: I reference that as kind of a skin hunger. And we believe that different people out of our DNA, out of our biology, have a different kind of a, of a hunger. Some of us have a higher hunger for that chemical, but all of us seem to kind of need it. So if I've spent quite a bit of time away, I experience this hunger for that chemical, that hunger for the touch, hunger for feeling close and connected. So when we come back together, we want more of it. It is interesting that we've learned that not only does touch release it, But if when we are together, we have plenty of time that we're focused in our attention, so looking into each other's eyes, not distracted by phone or TV, and we're caring for and listening to one another, and we're doing just the non-sexual, sensual touch, so maybe holding one another, um, caressing, uh, holding hands, that oxytocin is being released, but our brain associates it with the focused attention and with the voice. Then... If he's away on a business trip or he's away in deployment or he's, he's gone or she's gone for a bit and they call back and you hear their voice for a significant period of time afterwards the oxytocin is released during the voice. But after a while we need that kind of reconnection of the physical touch to help it to be released again as well.
0: That explains a lot. I love the phrase, a hunger for touch, and that your body is actually having a hunger for the touch that it's used to having. And I think that can also lead some people into temptation if they're not understanding what their body is going through and how they can best address that. I remember back in you know the first deployment that I just needed a safe hug. I needed to find, right. you know, I needed to visit my dad. I need to visit my brother where I can have those safe hugs Um, from someone that was safe to me that was not going to translate into something that was inappropriate. So because of your work with those that have gone through affairs, I know that there's a lot of couples, unfortunately, that might be listening to this interview who have gone through an affair or might be going through an affair now. Do you feel that a long-lasting marriage can happen after an affair has happened if they seek out help?
1: Definitely. Definitely. In fact, of the couples that come to see me, very few of them wind up falling apart. Most of them go on to have not just good marriages, but great marriages. There's almost a sense to where walking through that kind of a battle um, refines their marriage, helps them to grow stronger and stronger. Um, They learn that we can say the most difficult things to each other and we might have human reactions to it that we can heal from it. Um, these couples tend to learn that they can be truly intimate with one another and go on to have marriages that many times I look at these couples that are post-affair and I think, yeah, I admire your marriage. You have figured out how to have a truly great, rich marriage. Um, and the pain in the affair no longer defines them.
0: Obviously, we don't want people going out and having affairs in order to have a better marriage. But what do you think Correct. happens in that relationship specifically that helps them turn that
1: corner? I I really do think it's learning to be genuinely honest with one another. Uh, remember, an affair is a fantasy from beginning to end, all the way through it. it it's a lie. Um, they're presenting themselves different than who they are. They're often believing that their affair partner is different. They're denying the amount of pain and damage this is going to do. There's very little of that um, relationship that is truly authentic and true. And when they come back to their spouse and they start to open that up and start to share it, it's first off, it's really painful. It's It's a type of trauma that is pretty intense, but they learn that I can share what has happened. I can talk about the affair with my spouse and they're wounded by it, but they're able to receive that. They're able to accept me for who I really am. They're able to see what's unhealthy and the damage that I've done and be hurt, to be angry, to be sad, but still love me. The person who is the offended spouse learns that while I I have a great capacity to forgive, a great capacity to extend mercy, and that they are finally being honest with me is is rich, and that they can accept me being hurt and angry and sad in the intensity of my emotion and receive that well because they bought it. Um, now we can move into a marriage that is more honest, more authentic, and more intimate than it has ever been. And I think that that shift to it being truly authentic truly transparent is what allows these marriages to to really grow as well as just learning the grace and mercy and forgiveness learning contrition learning penance learning humility those are really tough lessons to learn but they're the they're the core of a rich intimate relationship and these couples have to learn it or they don't get well
0: Is there a typical amount of time or an average amount of time that these couples go through therapy before they get to a place where things are getting better?
1: Um, Yeah, actually, I'm going to shift that question just a little bit, Corey, because when couples come in to me, they, um, I start with pointing out this is, you know, a trauma, um, that there's been an enormous amount of damage that's done. And you don't step in and the doctor say, you know, we've got to cut deep into your heart. Um, we'll get you stitched up and you can go run a marathon tomorrow. Uh, we know it's going to be months worth of healing and and um, physical therapy. And it's kind of the same thing. And I tell couples it's going to be a three to five year healing journey to get back to where their marriage is truly rich and growing, where the affair is not central to their marriage any longer. Um, now, to go back to your original question, that doesn't mean that they're going to be in therapy with me for three to five years. Um, generally, it's going to be the first year, year and a half. Um, I tell couples the first three months are just hell. Um, the wound is so great. It's raw. It's gaping. Um, and it's so painful for that first three months. And then it's kind of like the stock market that they'll have one day that they can barely stand They can barely think because the pain is overwhelming. And then they'll have a day that, okay, I kind of like you, and we're going to be okay. And then the next day they may be right back. Um, And that lasts for the next nine months, but slowly is growing. The year anniversary tends to be really rough again. Um, But once they've walked through that year anniversary, the next two to three years are just a slow, steady climb. Still having bad days. But the bad days get less frequent. Um, when they're triggered and they kind of go into the pain and the hurt, it's not as overwhelming. They can tend to step out of it in sometimes minutes or hours instead of hours to days that they would get stuck in it. And it just slowly gets more and more manageable over time.
0: So those that might be toying with a possible emotional affair or might even find themselves in a physical affair right now, um, it's hard for me to believe that with the, the many, many listeners that we have to this interview, that there might be just someone out there that's considering getting into an inappropriate relationship. What would you say to them?
1: First off, um, the, the damage to this is always going to be way more than what they believe it is. Uh, remember, an affair is about fantasy. It is about lying to ourselves and to others. And we're not aware many times of the extent of that lie. And so we go into it believing that it's not going to be that big of a deal. I can keep it hidden. I can keep it managed. I can keep it from doing damage. And, And that's the whole nature of it, though, is to do damage. And it doesn't take very long before the damage is really more than what they ever counted to begin with. So the first thing would be to say this is going to cost you way more, multiple times more than what you think it's going to. It's going to go into um, kids, into extended family. It's going to go into um, your friends. The cost is going to be really high. The second thing I would encourage them to do is just to take a step back. Who do they really want to be as a person? Ten years from now, who would they be proud of? Would they be proud of the person that looked and said, wow, I had the opportunity to get into that affair. It, it would have been really hot or it would have been really fun. Or, it would have met some of my touch or intimacy needs, or I think they would have done something for me that my spouse never did. Would they be proud that they took that path? Or would they be proud of the person who said, I could have done that, but I chose to pursue integrity. I chose to fulfill the commitment that I made to my wife. Uh, who do you want to to present yourself to, as, to your kids 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What do you want the story of you to be? And most people say, yeah, I want a story of integrity. I want to be able to tell my kids I had the opportunity, but I chose not. Um, I chose your mom or I chose your dad, even when it was difficult. That's who I would be proud of. And so I tell them, well, let's figure out how we can make that person a reality, how you can fight for that individual, not the one that has the rush or the, the thrill for the moment, but pays a high cost later.
0: I'd like to agree with you that... Um, even though it's devastating to watch someone be honest and and tell their spouse something that's very traumatic and that breaks trust and and seeing that pain unfold it's a very courageous thing to watch as well and it is to see people Mm -hmm. look back later and find that they had the courage to go the right direction and go a better direction for their marriage to me at least from the outside as a clinician It's inspiring to watch a marriage shift the trajectory of where they want to go. And my hope in working with those couples is that they will always look back on that moment and not see it as this devastating moment, but seeing this moment, as you said, which is a moment to be honest and take off those masks and really start to see themselves for who they are and how they can move
1: forward. I think it can be both. Um, I can look back on a deep pain in my life and be really sad for the pain always. Mm -hmm. Always regret that the pain was chosen and always wish that you had never chosen that affair, that you had never chosen the pain. That can always be a part of the story. But alongside that story comes the wow, look at how that has prompted a healing journey and has prompted recovery and has prompted a, a growth that is truly rich. I don't know that we ever look back and it and are grateful for it, but we can look back on it and are grateful for what came out of it.
0: So very powerful words about how to be more protective of our relationships. I like the fact that you express the importance of accountability, of having the right friends around us, being aware of our bodies and what our bodies are needing and and finding those ways to address that appropriately. Anything else that you would add about protecting your marriage from... Um, the temptations of inappropriate relationships.
1: Yeah. One other thing that, that I spend a lot of time with is um, the importance of grieving. Uh, I believe that uh, the best spouse is going to fulfill about 80% of what I want in the spouse. That means the best spouse is still going to leave 20% uh, where I'm still hungry, where I wish she would be more like this, or I wish he would be more like that. Um, I wish he was the kind of guy who just thoroughly enjoyed sitting on the couch and cuddling with me, and yet he's never going to enjoy that. He, he never has. And in helping people to grieve the loss of it, if they don't grieve the loss of it, they're always hungering after it. Uh, let me explain. If, if, If a good friend of mine dies and I grieve the loss of him, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't ever want to see him again. My heart would still love to see him. But if you walk up and say, hey, he's over at the restaurant in the corner. Um, why don't you go talk to him and look at you a little strange? Um, yeah, that that's just weird. Many times I'm working with couples and she says, you know, I just wish my husband would love to cuddle with me. And, and he doesn't. Um, and then this guy across from me, he starts talking about wishing his wife would cuddle with him. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait, he would cuddle with me. If she's grieved the loss of that in her life, I'm never going to be married to somebody who gives that. She looks at him and goes, Oh yeah, that would be nice. But she doesn't getting it from him would be weird because she's grieved the loss of it. And many times people haven't grieved the loss. They're still waiting for their spouse to, to give them what they want. And that's such a dangerous space because I'm still more than hungering for it. I'm still expecting it and still seeking it. Once I've grieved it, I'm I'm no longer expecting it and no longer seeking it, even if my heart would still like it.
0: So I guess the natural question to that would be, what would someone do if they feel like what it is that they want from their spouse is a need that they feel like they need to have met?
1: You know, sometimes our spouse doesn't meet critical needs. Uh, We have to decide how important is the relationship to me? If they're not ever going to meet the need, or maybe they meet the need, just not the way I would like for them to meet the need, is that a deal breaker? For some couples, it is a deal breaker. And they say, you know, I can't stay married in a relationship that doesn't meet this need. I always caution them, you're going to go from this relationship to another one. And you might go from somebody who gives 80% of what you need to somebody who gives 60% of what you need you're just going to get the 20 in the new spouse, but what are you giving up? But they're still willing to make that that choice. Others say, you know, I, I am going to have to grieve it. Even if it's a need, I'm going to have to grieve the loss of it. We do that in other areas. We do that with the loss of somebody who's close to us or when um, there's an injury or a disease that takes something that's important to me take some of my mobility or take some of my function. I needed that function, but I have to learn to grieve the loss of it or I can never be whole and healthy again. Um, And I believe we can do that in relationships as well. Okay, I need this from a spouse, but I'm never going to get it from the spouse I've chosen. So how do I grieve the loss of it? That's a really tough, messy thing. Not everybody can do it, but if I'm going to have a healthy marriage, that's the choice that I have to, to, to accept.
0: So are you saying that part of protecting our marriage is by grieving the loss of something that our spouse may not be able to provide that we're wishing that they would be able to, and that will help us um, guard our expectations?
1: Yes, very much so. I think part of any healthy marriage is actually learning to grieve. Um, Scott Stanley in a brilliant book called The Heart of Commitment really addresses that well. That part of commitment and part of being stuck to somebody and, and choosing them and staying stuck to them is grieving who they are not.
0: That's really powerful because I've heard someone else talk about steps to, leading to an emotional affair and a, and a physical affair starting with a I deserve mentality. There's thoughts that go yes. through your mind of I wish He was more like this, or I deserve something like this because I I deserve to be happier. And so what I hear you saying is that when we change our expectations from an entitlement perspective to really accepting who our spouse really is and what they're able to give to us, and in some ways sacrifice some of the things that aren't perfect or our um, ideas of what perfection is, that we're able to extend that grace to their humanity and who they really are, and also shift our ex- expectations of what our marriage might look like.
1: Yeah, I, I have learned in my practice to really detest that phrase "I deserve," because I tell people eventually it is followed by bad choices. It's mm-hmm. followed by selfish choices. You're going to demand what you believe you deserve, and and that never works. Reaching the point that I accept my spouse for who they are and for who they are not allows me to come alongside them with curiosity and allows me to begin to discover who they really are as opposed to coming alongside them always demanding who I want them to be. That allows for a richer, more intimate marriage.
0: That's a very powerful phrase. Um, As a certified sex therapist, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about considering a lot of our couples spend a lot of time apart from each other where we um, can't connect, where that intimacy is, is challenging. I know things have changed. We have more technology, better technology than ever. We're able to have more connectivity with our service member if they're deployed than we used to be able to have. And a lot of our couples go through various amounts of time of deployment and separation. We can have, a you know, field training that might only be a week long, but some deployments are anywhere from three months to a year long. So a lot mm-hmm. of our couples have to find very creative ways to be intimate in their life to stay connected. And just as a reminder, this is a very mature conversation. So um, I would definitely not, not recommend that this interview be played in the carpool line where children might be getting in the car or might <laughs> be around at the house. But just to ask, is there is there anything that you would recommend that couples could do to stay connected when they're separated due to deployment?
1: Yeah, I think there are, like you said, the shift to uh, increasing technology has really uh, kind of reshaped how relationships are done. I work with an increasing number of couples that meet online, that date online, and learn to have really rich relationships now they still have to negotiate what it means when they come together but we're learning that you don't have to be um, in the same physical space to grow a great marriage i worked with a couple where he was deployed overseas for a year in a, a special type of an exercise and the couple came back from that year and said that they had truly grown their marriage over the course of that year. And the way they did it was the same way they had developed the relationship to begin with. When dating, we tend to be very intentional in seeking out the other individual. Um, we'll, we'll cross town to spend a half hour with them because it gives us the opportunity to, to connect. And this couple took a lot of those lessons and poured it into the time that they were physically separated from each other. They really sought to be intentional with each other. There was a lot of time that they couldn't connect even through technology because of the nature of, of what he was doing, but he still um, was intentional in doing some journaling and doing some reading together. They both picked a book that was marriage affirming that was teaching about how to grow their marriage and they would read that and Um, take notes and um, do some journaling on it. So when they were able to come together, not only were they just reconnecting and talking about, here's what the kids have done and here's how the day has gone, um, here's how I'm doing, but then they also spent time working on the relationship. They spent time talking about how are we doing with this and and what are you learning in the book and here were some of my takeaways um, and I think it was just all wrapped up in that one word of they were really intentional in growing the relationship. Um, they were intentional in talking about what it was like to be away. They were intentional in their sexual relationship. How do we grow that and how do we be, be flirty on the phone and how do we talk with each other on the phone? What are we going to do with the sexual relationship? And they spent time planning out, out how they were going to do it and um, and having um sexual phone calls with each other. So they kept kind of that relationship going and they just really were careful in talking about what is growing and what is detracting for each other. I thought they did a brilliant job with it.
0: Do you feel like part of it is for couples to communicate with each other, hopefully beforehand, but definitely throughout the deployment? What does that sexual communication need to look like so that they can kind of plan that in their intentionality?
1: You know just like when a couple is in the same room and trying to negotiate their sexual relationship there are things that each find really appealing and things that they don't and they have to negotiate it you know I like this kind of touch or I like it to be at uh, this intensity, or yeah, don't touch that part until you've warmed up this part. And they have to really communicate well with each other. They have to be a little bit selfish in saying what they do like, but they have to be really gracious and curious in understanding what their spouse likes. I don't think it's any different to move it into a distance relationship. There may be some things that he likes talking about on the phone and likes sharing with her. And she says, you know, this is potentially an insecure communication i'm not okay with that i don't feel safe with it and i tell i tell couples well you know if if they don't feel safe they can't be open no different than they feel like the three-year-old's going to bust into the bedroom you can't ask them to be vulnerable and transparent if they don't feel safe if they don't feel safe in some conversations over the internet or over phone lines then we have to negotiate it there may be some behaviors that they thoroughly enjoy doing um, in a distance relationship that would feel awkward uh, one-on-one. Or there may be things that, when they're in the same room, are really rich that they wouldn't begin to explore in a distance relationship. And I think the word that you, or the concept that you are talking about there just in communication is the, the key of it they've got to talk with each other and give each other the space to go, okay, we tried that. It didn't feel good. It wasn't helpful. It was distracting or can we keep exploring it? And for couples that stay curious and playful in this process and intentional, I think it really can work. But yeah, I think you've nailed it there into talking about how do we, how do we just really communicate well with each other in the process?
0: Is there anything that you have found that um, you would caution couples against pursuing the sexual intimacy over distance?
1: Yes. Um, I think the first key is um, what are we striving for? And for couples that are striving for intense physical pleasure, that can get really difficult in the distance type of relationship. Because what they may need to do to get that might distract them from each other for couples that say our sexual relationship is about the intimacy and about pursuit of one another, about connecting to each other, that opens up a lot more options. So first off is what are we doing this for? What is the goal? Um, and then we're stepping back and saying, okay, does so this particular behavior enhance the goal or distract from the goal. So if my goal is intimacy with my husband, if my goal is intimacy with my wife, there may be things that help to enrich that Um, that may be even a little bit outside the box. But if my goal is uh, intimacy and I'm bringing somebody else into the the picture, for example, pornography, uh, we've seen that pornography tends to be highly distracting to intimacy goals and highly distracting to um, even our function if it's used long-term. And so helping couples to talk through what facilitates and what distracts, there may be ways that particular kinds of masturbation are actually distracting because I'm training my body to respond to something that your body will never be able to do. There are other types of masturbation that in done with each other, with each other's consent, with each other's Knowledge can be playful when we're in a long-distance type of a relationship and can actually help uh, when the couple comes back together. Um, That will vary a little bit from couple to couple. And, And really guarding your heart in it, you know, I tell couples, if you're open and sharing with each other and you're talking about what you're doing and you're both really good with it, um, you are hearing each other's voice during the masturbatory process. You're connecting the arousal with your spouse's voice and with what they're saying. All of those things can help in many couples, not at all, but in many couples can help to facilitate the intimacy, which is really what we're after here. Um, If they're not associating their spouse, if they're going someplace else in their mind um, during masturbation, then they're training themselves to go away from their spouse. That can be distracting. But I think the key is, what is our goal, and does this behavior facilitate the goal or distract from the goal?
0: Are there any situations where you would say that pornography is helpful or beneficial to a relationship?
1: There are a few in my field that believe that it can be in very limited um, uses. For the most of us, we don't see it at all helpful. It tends to be nothing but destructive and distracting, um, especially for longer-term use of it. It's designed to distract us away from our spouse, not to lead us toward our spouse. Often they are fantasy-based, so we're teaching ourselves something and associating uh, something that's not real. Um, our brains are pretty plastic in, in their ability to learn and to adapt. It does that because that's how we train. Uh, we go out and we do the same behavior over and over and over again, and we, we learn to make it instinctual. Um, the pornography can teach us things that we're not even aware that it's teaching us that are distracting and, and pull away from the relationship. We're, in our field as sex therapists, we're seeing an increasing number of guys, for example, that are experiencing erectile dysfunction, and we're able to trace it back to the pornography use, something that we would not have expected, but we're seeing that as part of how how the body is being trained unintentionally. We see similarly for women who, in using a vibrator in particular ways that train them to respond only to that Particular kind of stimulation um, actually gets distracting from the relationship aspect. Right? So the couple needs to be really careful with um, intense types of stimulation like pornography.
0: So you brought up sexual struggles and dysfunction. A lot of military families have some, a period of time that they've spent apart. And of course there's great excitement at reconnecting and service member comes home and you know, it's easy to think that they'll be able to connect very easily like the last time that they saw their spouse. Could you see any um, potential opportunities for some dysfunction or a, a struggle of reconnecting with a spouse after they've spent a significant time apart?
1: Yeah, actually, I think that is more the the standard for couples to struggle with it. Now, maybe not initially, um, they're both just really excited at getting together and um, for the first few hours they're together, the first couple of days they're together and the sexual relationship is is going really well and then they kind of run into a bit of a wall. For others, that wall hits almost immediately and I tell them to kind of expect it. And to think about it, almost in terms of kind of redating one another, um, that if it was a dating relationship, they wouldn't expect to just jump right into great sex. They're going to want to go out to eat together. They're going to want to spend some time with the non-sexual, sensual touch, um, holding hands and and um, hugging and cuddling with each other and kissing and allowing our bodies to reconnect with each other, allowing our bodies to feel safe with each other. Um, for, If we think of that oxytocin piece again, um, for men, when we have an orgasm with our spouse, when we have a partnered orgasm, our body releases 500 to 600 times the amount of oxytocin into our system. So we instantly feel close. And it doesn't take us very long as men to learn that's what works. If I've been distant from her and I wanna feel close, when I get home if we just have sex right here in the foyer I will feel all better for women generally that's not gonna work quite the same way for most women they need a fairly high level of oxytocin in order for their in order to respond well in order for their body to get aroused in order for them to they even experience a type of desire or a longing for sex the oxytocin has to be fairly high so for many wives that he woos her, that he does some um, cuddling, that he spends some focused attention on her is what helps to build that oxytocin out so she can respond well. I will work with many couples where, while the stereotype is the guy, you know, steps in and having sex allows him to feel connected, I work with many guys that need a fairly high level of oxytocin before they can respond. And I work with several women that... That orgasm is what helps them to feel connected and everything is all set. Rarely do I see the same thing in the same couple. So allowing them to step back and say, okay, we may, we may just need some time to redate, to reconnect with each other, to feel like we're safe uh, with each other again, um, to move back into it, uh, I think is a really important expectation. Then to go back to what you had said earlier, that communication piece gets critical. And being able to say I just need more cuddling um, and that's okay I need more oxytocin buildup before I can respond well.
0: Is there any other advice that you would give to any couples that feel that they struggle with being incompatible sexually with their spouse maybe this has been an ongoing issue not just when they come home and reconnect after a deployment?
1: I would probably give a couple of different points one is uh, what you said earlier in communicating with each other Um, We've learned that the, the majority of the pain, the majority of the distress that happens in a couple relationship over what they would call sexual incompatibility comes from them not communicating well with each other, that we believe that there is more incompatibility than there really is. And that's part of what I showed in my doctoral dissertation, is that the problem was less the incompatibility the problem was more the story they told about the incompatibility that each of them believed they were further apart on the scale than they really were and we resolve the bulk of that um, pain and the distress by just getting them talking through it and couples realizing we're not as far apart as what we assume we are the next thing is to be curious and lean in and just okay what is going on here I keep thinking it's about me that you don't want to connect with me or that you don't want to do it this way and maybe it's not about me. Can can I just understand a little bit more? Why wouldn't you want to do this? Not because I believe you should, but I'm truly curious in what's going on in your mind. When I know the story, it's a lot easier for me to care for them. When I am placing a story on them, it's rarely an honoring kind of a story. So being curious to understand what is, is truly going on for them in the process. And then third is to always seek to care for them. Um, while sex is only good when, when there's a little bit of selfishness, there needs to be a lot of caring and a lot of giving. And how do I, how do I seduce you by speaking your language into something that would be appealing to both of us? When sex becomes about you meeting my need at whatever cost it has for you, it's always going to be bad and destructive. Um, When it's about how do we find the middle ground and grow that middle ground, um, then it can be rich and it can be better and better.
0: So, many of our service members come home with invisible or visible wounds of war. Some of them struggle physically with injuries. Um, Some of them struggle with post traumatic stress, maybe even traumatic brain injury. And some recent research has come out that even showed that concussions that happen during deployment can cause hormone imbalances. And have you found anything in your practice about how any of these symptoms or some of the physical challenges or even maybe hormone imbalances can impact sexual intimacy for a couple?
1: Yeah, very much so because a core about our sexuality, whether that be our desire, um, our drive, whether that be about our ability to be aware of the arousal or experience the arousal or have arousal, about our orgasm, um, all of that is largely hormonal driven. So when those hormones are out of balance or any host of things, it can dramatically affect uh, our sexual functioning all the way across the board. Whether that be desire, arousal, orgasm, um, it, it, it's that's what controls it. So if it's out of balance, it's going to be there's going to be an impact.
0: Just out of curiosity, is there anything that you recommend for those who might be struggling with some of these symptoms on ways that they can find new hope that they can regain that sexual confidence?
1: Um, Yeah, a couple of different things. One is I think we need to address, if it is a physiological largely in its base, obviously we're going to need to address the physiological first. So making sure that they're they're staying on top of the physicians and okay this isn't working for me can we keep can we keep trying to figure out something that will work so just doing good nutrition and making sure they're getting good sleep and they're exercising and just getting themselves um, as healthy as they can making sure the med balance is working and staying on top of their physicians for that piece of it is pretty critical when there's a physiological base to it. But we are, we, our intimacy, our sexuality is more than just our physical nature. And sometimes things happen physically that prohibit us from being able to function physically like we would want to sexually. Diabetes, for example, um, prostate cancer, there's a host of things, as well as injury that you're identifying, that can severely limit our physical ability to respond. But because we are more than just physical, If it's about the intimacy of a couple, and we continue to pursue that, then couples can learn ways to work around the physical piece. My my favorite example is a client of mine. He's in his 70s, and he looked at me not long ago, and he said, I am having the best sex of my life. He said, it is truly amazing. He says, now at 74 years old, he says, my penis rarely shows up to the party any longer. And he says, and and even when it does, my wife's body isn't always able to accommodate. He said, it's great when our bodies work, but I've learned that it's not critical. We can still have a deeply intimate, sensual sex life, even if our bodies aren't cooperating with us. And I think that's the goal of learning that, yeah, it's really great when my body works well. But even if my body's not working well, I can still lean in and had a truly intimate experience with my spouse. And helping couples to do that sometimes takes a while for them to learn. But if that's the goal, it can truly be rich.
0: That's a really powerful and a powerful example. Are there any resources that you would recommend to our listeners who have experienced struggles in their sexual
1: intimacy? For sexual intimacy, I think there are a number of, of good kind of books that are out there. Um, I really like what um, Barry McCarty is guiding right now. Um, Any of his books, um, a couple of them with Michael Metz as well on working with uh, problem areas like erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, but then just some that are related just to intimacy. For faith-based couples, for those that are looking for more faith-based stuff, I think Clifford and Joyce Penner just came out with their update of the book, Restoring the Pleasure, and Restoring the Pleasure is a kind of step-by-step guide for how do, we, how do we restore healthy sexuality. And that can be a great one, great guide for couples to kind of walk through. Even if they're coming back from a long period of being apart, how do we help restart this? And it'll give them exercises to work through. I think um, books like When Two Become One is just a great book on how do we, how do we make it about the intimacy? Or, um, again, Cliff and Joyce Penner's book, uh, The Way to Love Your Life, I think is just a brilliant book for couples to to read and in, in having a vision of what healthy sexuality looks like and how to pursue it. That that goes beyond just the physical.
0: What about those who have experienced the pain of affairs? Would you have any resources or books for them?
1: From more of a faith-based side, Dave Carter's book, Toward and Asunder, I think is really good. Um, there's a workbook that couples can work through. There are a number of couple stories, like surviving infidelity, that that give couples hope as well. From a non-faith kind of perspective, I like Scott Haltzman's The Secrets of Surviving Infidelity. I think he's done a good job in there and helping give couples a pathway through healing. And online, Ernie Burke has the Beyond Affairs Network. It was started by Peggy Vaughan, one of the leaders in the field of uh, surviving infidelity. And after her death, um, Annie has taken that over. Um, it is an online support group, so not everybody in it is healthy. Not everybody in it is reached a point of healing. But as a network, as a support network of people, I think it does a great job of just helping people to normalize now the amount of pain you're in is normal that you're having these feelings, that's what healing looks like. And I think that is a great resource for many of my clients.
0: You mentioned um, those who are wanting some faith-based perspectives. I've noticed that those that come into my practice, as since I'm a military spouse and a clinician, and also a Christian counselor, I get a lot of Christian women that come in to see me that are struggling because sex is rarely discussed in their upbringing in the church. And I know a lot of there's a lot of ministries coming out lately who are being a lot more open about this topic and wanting to help couples really begin the conversation about healthy sexuality. Um, have you run into this same issue as far as Christian couples who might feel unprepared going into marriage and and maybe not having good education on their sexuality before coming in and then maybe struggling with that in marriage? Yeah,
1: definitely. Because um... Especially in the faith-based community, we spend a lot more time talking about what not to do in sexuality and not enough time painting a vision of what it can be and what it's like when it's great. Uh, so couples come in with this long list of of what the no's are and no real list of what the yeses are. And so we spend time in counseling helping them to figure out what is the goal? What are they after? What are they striving for? I, again, I think there are a couple of exercises that I give both men and women. Uh, I'll see both coming in uh, struggling with this. And the first thing I encourage them to do is they've got to start unpacking what their beliefs are. Um, I think doing some journaling. What do I believe about sex? What do I think the goal is? Um, I have an exercise that's available for download on my website that kind of helps couples to, to talk through this. What were the messages that I learned in childhood? What were the messages that I learned in, in early dating or some of my early sexual experiences? What, I, what do I hope for in a healthy sexuality? What, what would the vision of that even look like? And I tell people you need to spend some time just yourself in a journal or a piece of paper just unpacking what your beliefs are. And then sit down as a couple and share with each other, here's what I'm bringing into the table. Here's, here's where my baggage is, and here's where I'd like for it to go. And spend some time just exploring and sharing that with each other. Next, once we've figured out where I'm coming from and, and where my current belief is, we need to be open to something that's different, something that may be healthier. And I tell couples, I think the best way to do that is some of the great books that are out there, like When Two Become One or um, The Way to Love Your Wife or Doug Lozanoff's Celebration of Sex. Um, and and I tell couples, sit down, um, pick a couple of hours a week, and um, sit down on the bed and just read the book out loud to each other. And the goal is not to get to the end of the book. The goal is to read a couple of paragraphs and then look at each other and go, so what do you think? You know, is, Do you think this is even accurate? Does this fit who we are? to use it as a a way to discuss what they want in their sex life, Um, what would they like for it to look like. Is the practices they're talking about here something they could be comfortable with or do they need to be off the table? And if we can get couples talking about and envisioning what a healthy sex life looks like and partnering together on it, often that can make for a really rich relationship and a richer sex life because now they're pursuing a goal. They're not trying to avoid something that's unhealthy.
0: With the experience that you have working with a, a broad range of couples and issues that they're coming in with, what have you seen as God's design for marriage, especially as life hands us, sometimes a set of difficulties?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question. I love spending a lot of time on that. Um, but to kind of focus it down from a faith perspective, using you know the, the Christian kind of language, I really believe that marriage is all about discipleship. God created Adam. He looked at Adam and he went, yeah, so you can't be what I've created you to be by yourself. And so he created Eve. Eve was God's first discipleship tool. Um, marriage is God's first discipleship tool in helping us to grow up and be like him. And, and so I spent a lot of time encouraging couples to, to just see marriage as about helping you to grow up helping you to be more and more Christ-like. You're looking at your wife, and you're demanding that she be the sexual partner that you want. That's not how Christ works with you. It's a good thing he doesn't. Um, Instead, he comes alongside you, and he woos you, and he he draws you in, and he's patient with you. How can you do that with your wife? How can you be more Christ-like? You're looking at your husband, and you're demanding that he be something, a a spiritual leader that he's not. Uh, How can you instead come alongside And deal with your own stuff and draw him into that space. Um, So I really believe that marriage is about discipleship. It's about helping us to grow up. And I I tell the couples that I work with, I I don't like discipleship. I think discipleship is really painful. It's really icky. Um, It's rarely fun. But I continue that discipleship path because what we get out of it is well worth it. I think, for example, the the story that we've used of the The affair recovery is a really nasty way to grow up. But for the couples that stay in that journey, what they get out of it is so rich, uh, is so good. So for me, marriage is about discipleship. It's about growing up. It's about becoming more and more Christ-like and learning curiosity and learning grace and learning mercy and and learning how to truly be the kind of spouse that, that I would want to have. Um, I don't, I think that's an easy journey, but I think it's a worthy one.
0: Before you wrap up, I would love to hear you unpack a little bit about the role of grace, and diving a little bit deeper here into the marriage relationship. So
1: in the late 90s, when I was just really getting into marriage and falling in love with doing marriage work, I had two main groups of people that were coming to see me. Premarital couples, because I, I was stepping out of the church and doing a lot of premarital work before couples could get married, and then these couples that were in crisis. And I spent a lot of time looking at what's the difference between these two couples. They feel so different in the room. And I just kind of narrowed it down to grace. The premarital couple would walk in, and I'd point out some things about the the guy that just weren't all that healthy, and she'd go, yeah, but, but I love him. And yeah, but she extended enormous grace for him for his humanity for sometimes his childishness or sometimes his selfishness and he would do the same thing for her yeah well she's not all that good of a cook but that doesn't matter so much because and they extended so much grace for each other the couple that were coming in in crisis had zero grace for each other they wouldn't tolerate any humanity well every time I tell him I'm not I'm too tired for sex he blows up he extends no grace for me being human and that I've worked all day and I've managed the kids and I just am out of energy. For a dating couple, they would extend grace for each other. Now that they're married, there is no grace. And he would say, you know, I, I can't figure out how to clean the kitchen just right. And she extends no grace for it. You know, she is always angry that I don't see the house the way she does. And, and so I tell couples, I think grace is really critical. Grace is where we extend the spirit of ongoing forgiveness. I forgive you for being human and for not doing it the way I do. It's Grace is believing the best in each other, where I focus on what's good in you and I grieve what's not, I tolerate what's not. I believe that eventually some of those things you'll grow. But for today, I extend grace for them. Now, it doesn't mean that everything we should extend grace for. There are some things that are out of bounds. But as a general rule, my spirit towards my spouse is one of grace, that I'm going to come alongside you be curious and, and gracious in my approach to you, and we're going to figure out life together. And we're going to allow each other to make lots of mistakes along the way. Um, and I think that that whole spirit of it is encompassed for me in the word grace. So I spend a lot of time helping couples to to spot that, to figure it out to see the best in each other and extend graceful where they're not always their best.
0: Dr. Seitzma, your words are are not only wise, but extremely powerful. Um, is there anything else that you feel like you would love for the audience to know on either healthy sexuality, maybe a word of encouragement to these military families? Is there anything else that you'd want to say?
1: You know, I think um, to specifically to the military families. You know um I, I don't want it to go as just assume that there is great um, great thanks for the enormous cost that they go through um, to to serve in the role that they serve in um, and that's not just to those that are out there fighting the battle, whatever that battle may look like, um, whatever support role they have, they're still out there fighting that battle, but all of their their spouses and their families that are at home they pay an enormous cost for us as a country and and huge grateful for that in that cost sometimes it feels overwhelming and sometimes quite honestly it probably is to say that you don't have to be alone in it um, i don't think life works really well when we try to do it alone Uh, there are plenty of people around that we can begin to connect with uh not just professionals though. there are plenty of us that are more than happy to work with with people that are struggling there are lots of others couples families that are in the same boat and meeting having dinner spending time talking with each other uh, we don't have to fight these enormous battles all on our own any anybody in the military knows you go up against the enemy by yourself and you're probably not going to survive but you get a large enough group of people around you and you stand a much better chance. I don't think that's any different in um, in having great marriages and having great families and raising great kids. Uh, We do it best when we do it in a community of people that are standing beside us. Um, If we as professionals can help in that way, more than happy to, the major encouragement would be don't try to do this alone. I don't think it works very well.
0: Dr. Seismith, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and for your, your expertise in these areas. They're very touchy subjects, but I know speak truth into the lives and hearts of those that are listening. And I'm sure it resonates in lots of different ways. I hope it's helpful.
1: Would you like to send in a shout out and have it included on the Life Giver podcast? Anyone, civilian or military, can thank a military spouse who has made a difference in your life or say thank you to a service member for working hard on your marriage. Record your shout-out by using your voice memo app available on your device and email it to cory at coryweathers.com or call in and leave a voicemail shout-out to 706-431-7222 and we will do our best to include it in future podcasts.